following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Before we begin, uh, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have uh, asked about Oleg Kalin, uh, the missionary and my friend who we support in Ivano-Frankivsk, Ukraine. Um, I got a message from Oleg last night saying that um, that uh, things are difficult and and he feels caught. He said, uh, I, I've never had to uh, plan for war before. And he said, I, I know I have a responsibility for my family, but I also have a responsibility to my church. So I'm I'm not really sure what to do <laughs> or how to plan or, uh, or necessarily even how to pray. So I just encourage you as you uh, watch the news or read the news and you hear about Ukraine to, to pray for Oleg and um, for his church and for his ministry and um, for the, the entire church, all of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Um, please turn with me to Second Thessalonians 1. 2 Th- Thessalonians 1. And if you are visiting with us this morning, uh, my name is Jed Brown. I'm the associate pastor here. And um, as you may have already heard, Pastor Steve will be back next week. <clears throat> I'm going to read the entire chapter, Second Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to, to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. According to the grace of our God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of the Lord. Well, let's begin with prayer. (laughs) 
our good God, our sovereign Savior, lover of our souls. We pray to you this morning. We pray to you that you would do in us as Paul has prayed for the Thessalonians. And I pray the same for Oleg and for all of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and all of our brothers and sisters around the world, especially those who are suffering or are facing affliction. I pray that you would bring grace and peace. Pray that you would favor them. I do pray that you would bring peace in Ukraine. Father, I I pray more than this, and no matter what your answer is to that prayer, I pray that you would work with power in us, through us, in Oleg, in his church, through his church. I pray that you would produce fruit. Pray that you would grow under the under the harsh heat of, of their affliction fruit. Pray that you would deepen their faith in you and their love for one another. I pray that you would deepen it such that others would look in and see you, that you would be glorified there in the midst of much difficulty. I pray that you would be glorified in them and that in your working in them and in us, that you would that you would do something that would that you would bring forward on that day when you return, when all the world sees that you are righteous in your judgments. That you would that you would do something that that you would bring forward on that day, fruit, evidence to show that we too are in you, that we are in you, and being in you. Enjoying Your glory forever. So Lord, only You can do this. Only You can produce this. So I pray that You would do it. Pray that You would do that there and here. Do it for Your glory and for our good. So Lord, we need Your power. I need Your power. I I understand, especially from this text, why Pastor Steve sometimes prays. For, for order and, and for clarity. I, so I, I pray for that too. I, I pray that you would give order to my words and understanding to our minds and uh, open hearts. Open hearts too to trust you, to love you, to follow you wherever you lead. I pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. <clears throat> So I, I want us to consider Second Thessalonians 1 this morning because it contains a perspective for us, a perspective of vital importance. Vital importance. It's important because it points us to how we grow. To how we grow. But, but not only that, it points us to how we persevere to the end. Um, It involves a a shift of mind, I think, for many of us. A a, a mind shift 
that a change in perspective that is necessary if we're to if we're to step out of our our, our lethargy, our, our our spiritual just getting by, our our getting bowled over by the circumstances of life and our our own sin and our own troubles. We need this because th- this is not just the, the, the language of of endurance; it is the language of revival. It is the language of an overcomer. It's the language of hope. It's a perspective that on the one hand assaults the very things that, that keeps us defeated and, and spiritually impotent. Uh, but it will also lead us out, if we would get this, it will also lead us out to a place of fruitful perseverance. of Not just getting by, but thriving, growing, being overcomers. Being what we're called in, in the book of Revelation, overcomers, no matter the circumstance. That's what Paul wants for the Thessalonians. Uh, and their, thir- their circumstances were difficult. They were rough. Um, so he writes to them to point them to the, to the source of their, of their comfort and hope. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. This is, this is really the, the central, central point of the letter, the center of the letter that our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace would comfort their hearts and establish or strengthen them in every work and word. He wants more for them than just enduring through the midst of suffering. He wants them to thrive, to experience strength, to experience stable fruitfulness even in the midst of their trials. And, and their trials were significant. Paul and his friends first shared the gospel in Thessalonica and up sprang a church and immediately up sprang opposition. Thessalonica was a free city, which meant that it enjoyed many economic privileges in the Roman Empire. And in return, the people of Thessalonica felt a strong allegiance to Rome. In fact, a kind of religious fervor and adulation for the emperor. And so, when these Thessalonians became Christians, their allegiance shifted. They had a new king. And the people of Thessalonica saw this as a threat to their prosperity. So they sought to stamp out this threat. Real persecution, real affliction. And so we read in Acts 17 that the brothers there insisted that Paul and his friends leave. They physically put them on a train, so to speak. And then we read in 1 Thessalonians, at least it's possible to infer there that that Paul is referring to someone who actually died from these persecutions. Real persecution, real affliction, real heat. So their questions must have been many. How do we think about this? Have we done something wrong here? Uh, if, If we are in Christ, what's the purpose of this? What, what's happening here? And so in his first letter, Paul encouraged them and taught them how to, how to think and, and live in light of death. And now Paul writes again. He begins the letter, as we've, as we've read, with his usual greeting, grace and peace. Grace, God's unmerited smile, His favor upon them, His strong, full of love favor. 
and peace. Peace to a people under attack. Grace and peace is coming to them through the words of this letter. And as he often does, he prays for them, or, or really he, he tells them how he prays for them. And if we compare Paul's prayer here honestly to our own, I think we immediately sense that we are in foreign territory. <laughs> this is an alien Martian landscape when it comes to prayer. We don't pray this way. <laughs> so an immediate and crucial question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, why? Why don't I pray this way? This is, a, this is a, a passage about prayer, but it's not really about prayer. It's about a, a deeper question of what's our perspective? What reality are we actually living in? So he prays for them. He prays, and it's fascinating. I hope you will see it as fascinating and gripping and, and perspective-changing as we see what he prays for and why he prays it. The prayer really runs to the rest of the chapter, and we can, we can break it into three parts. First, he gives thanks. Then he tells what's on his mind as he prays for them. That's essentially 5 through 10 or 6 through 10, depending on how you cut it. And then he asks God for specific things in accordance with what's on his mind in verses 11 and 12. So Paul says that he ought to always thank God for them, verse 3, because under this heat, they're not wilting. They're growing. It's actually, it's actually under the heat and, and through this heat that they are abounding, he says, in faith and love. <clears throat> abounding. Their, their branches were heavy with fruit. And as, you'll, as you read Paul's letters, you'll notice that of all of the fruits that Christians are supposed to have, um, there's three that Paul brings up again and again. Some people call it the Pauline Trinity. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment. But... Paul always seems to come back to faith, hope, and love. And the Thessalonians are abounding in faith and love in this heat, in their trouble. They were demonstrating that paradoxical power of God that the, their anvil of suffering had actually become the very soil upon which they would grow. They were growing fruit, the fruits of faith and love. And so... Paul, having been there at their birth as a church, he's like a, he's like a joyful grandmother in verse 4. He's just had another grandkid. He, he can't help but pull out the pictures and talk about them wherever he goes. Um, that's the sense of boast here. Not, a, not an arrogant bragging, but a, but a joyful grandparental exaltation. Um, wherever he goes, he, he talks about them. But he also wants to frame their situation for them. He wants, to, he wants to frame it because he wants them to have hope. He wants them to have good hope, real, effective, useful hope. He's not just going to plant a plastic flower in the soil of their suffering and say, there you go, feel better. He wants to give them real hope. Um, so he wants them to have a, a strong hope that transcends their situation. So he frames their situation in verse 5 to, to help them see what it really is. And this truth in verse 5, we must get. It is, it is crucial that we understand this. It is mind-shifting and glorious and comforting and hope-filling. It is, I hope you will agree, 
Wonderful. Paul says in verse 5 that this is evidence. Evidence of what? We need to ask. Evidence, Paul says, of the righteous judgment of God. Or to, to capture the sense a little bit better, evidence that God's judgment will be seen to be right, to be fair, to be just, to be righteous. To be right. And this evidence will be, will be put forward for a purpose. This evidence will be put forward to show that God is right, just, and fair to consider the Thessalonians worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, the word judgment doesn't necessarily always take on a, on a negative connotation. Sometimes it can be neutral, and that's what's happening here. Paul is saying, he's talking about the judgment of a judge as in a court case. One day, God will judge them, will consider them, will count them worthy of His kingdom. And He will conclude this based on evidence, based on evidence that will show that His conclusion is right and just to call them worthy. So what evidence? What's the this of verse 5? Well, it refers back to, in verse 4, both the Thessalonians' persecutions and afflictions, as well as their steadfastness and faith. It included the hatred of their society and that the revulsion of their culture against them. That was evidence. But it was also that, that they were standing firm. It was the fruit that they were producing under this heat. They demonstrated by their fruit what kind of tree they really were. And that fruit was love, faith, and steadfastness. So Thessalonians, in your suffering, there is a purpose. There is a good purpose. There is actually the best purpose, an eternal purpose. In fact, I, God, am accomplishing the very thing you need the most in your sufferings, in your heat. I am producing the very evidence you will need on that day to be counted worthy. Do you see this? Do you, do you see how, how, how mind-shifting this could be as, as the Thessalonians were to look at their troubles, to look at their afflictions, that God was not doing random, and God wasn't just doing good. He wasn't just shaping them up and making them better. No, 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 no. God was producing the very thing which would show His own judgment of them on, on the final day to be right, to be good. God was producing fruit by which they would experience Him and enjoy Him forever to be saved. <laughs> so... Begs the question, who was actually acting in their suffering? Who was actually in the persecution? Who was doing the doing? Yes, it is the citizens of Thessalonica who were doing the persecuting, but it was actually God who was doing the doing. It was God who was working in it to bring about the very thing that they needed most, and by implication, the very thing they could not produce themselves. The very thing that they could not produce themselves, God was producing through the persecution. God was in it. God was in the heat for their ultimate, eternal good. 
This is good news. This would have been good, freeing, mind-changing news to them. God is mounting up evidence. And verse 6, God's mounting up evidence in the other direction. The sentence here actually reads something to the effect of, since it is just that God will repay. Again, Paul is, is focused here on God being seen as just in His judgments on that final day. So the point here is that God's acts at the, at the end of all time will be seen as just and right. At that time, He will pay affliction for affliction. And verse 7, He will grant relief to you, Thessalonians. Not yet. Not yet. But then, He will bring relief, Thessalonians. Relief will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, verse 8. They will inflict vengeance on that day on all who... Two things. Do you see them here? On all who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These are their fundamental problems. This is their primary offense. The evidence that they do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel is that they persecute and afflict the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians' response is also evidence that they will be accepted, but their persecutors will not. Now you say, isn't this Old Testament stuff? I thought God was merciful now. I thought, I, I, I thought there was this, you know, turning the other cheek and all that. And I, I thought that the New Testament God was, was gracious, right? Yes, yes, yes. But God has always been gracious. He never changes. In fact, as we move through the Bible, we see His characteristics not change, but only become more clear, more intense, more vivid. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the same. He is full of love and He is full of mercy and He is just. He is just. And you know what? You don't really want a God who is only merciful anyway. I mean, we might say that, but we really don't want that. I mean, maybe for other people, but not for ourselves, right? I mean, everybody still wants the judge to come back with a just conclusion, right? We still want the jury to come back with a a just verdict. We still want that. And if there's no justice, well, mercy too becomes a meaningless concept. What does it mean without justice? And regardless, God cares very much that on that day His judgments will be seen as just. He cares very much about that. And so they will. So verse 9, they will experience punishment. Sobering words. Eternal destruction, He says. They will always, forever, experience being destroyed, though never annihilated. This is because they will be away from the presence of the Lord, Paul says, the only source of goodness and mercy. They will be away from the glory of His might, which previously restrained them. But now they will get what they want. They will get freedom, freedom from God. And in being freed from God, they will become fully what they already are. No one will be requesting a second chance. 
No one will be asking for another, another chance to repent. No, who they are will, will fully flower. Their sinful desires will be unfettered and sin always leads to destruction. And so they will always eternally be destroyed. Now this passage is for Christians to encourage and comfort Christians. Not, not, in, a, not in a cheering on the, the destruction of the wicked kind of way. No, no, no. No, not at all. This is sobering. But, but in the knowledge that, that justice will be done and that there is an eternal good purpose in what's happening in my heat. But if you are not a Christian, the path to being found worthy on that day is also found in this verse. We just need to flip it over. Um, We only need to flip it over and look. Now now you say, I I thought you said that to get worthy means to suffer terrible things and to persevere and to be a super Christian in the process. No, no, no. No, Paul says that the faith and the love and the steadfastness of the Thessalonians are evidence, evidence of their being worthy. But we see in verse 9 the basis for anyone to be found worthy. The reality that the evidence points to is that that person know God. And the way that you know God is by obeying the gospel of His Son. And how do we obey that gospel? Jesus tells us Himself in John 6.29, He says that the, the work of God of this is to believe in the One that He sent. To believe in Christ. Trust Him. If you believe in Him, if you, if, 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 you, uh, if you believe on Him for the forgiveness of your sins and if you turn from living as your own King and, and, and turn to Him as your new King and submit to Him as King, you will be counted worthy. You will be counted worthy not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Christ did at the cross for you in your place. And you will be considered justly, rightly be considered worthy of the kingdom on that day. Why? Because God will have justly poured out His wrath for your sins on Christ, not, for, not upon you. And so He will be seen on that day to justly say, You are worthy. I have justly, rightly dealt with your sins, my beloved child. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. So trust Him. Trust Him. Which is why, verse 10, we will be glorified with Him And we will marvel at Him when He comes. All of us who have believed, it says, verse 10. All of us who have believed. He did it all. We will owe everything to Him. The basis of our being included in this this marveling is believing in Jesus, not what we have done. The evidence, though, is the fruit that we bear until then. So Paul encourages them with this last phrase in verse 10. The the sense actually means, and by the way, Thessalonians, you're going to be in this. You're going to be in this. And and God is actually doing something now in your affliction which will be pulled forward on that day, which will be shown as evidence for you on that day. Glory in your suffering. Glory. Glory. So Paul now tells them what he asks God to do for them. And 
verse 11. To this end, with this in mind, he says. Well, what end? What, what in mind? Because I'm, I'm thankful, he says. I'm thankful for the fruit that I already see in you. Because he is coming to be glorified in his saints. And because evidence will be brought out to show God's judgment of you is right and just and fair. So I always pray for you. Whenever I pray for you, I never not pray this way. I might pray for other things from time to time, depending on who I'm praying for and what their situation is. But I never not pray this way for you. Well, what is that? That God would make you, or some translations say count you. That God would, would count you worthy of His calling. So wait, I, I thought you said they were already worthy. Yes, yes they are. They've already been made into a new creation, a new tree, if you will. And so now Paul prays for that which they will need most, which they must produce fruit because they are in Christ. The fruit that they themselves cannot produce themselves. Because they are worthy, Paul prays that God would produce in them that which will demonstrate beyond any doubt that they are worthy. Paul prays that God would make them really more of what they already are. (laughs) More of what they already are. Like a photograph. The photographer has already taken the picture, but he needs to develop it. So Paul prays to the photographer to develop the picture more clearly into what um, they already are. But there's a flaw in the, the photograph analogy. The photograph itself is completely passive. Not so with us and with them. He prays that God would fulfill their every resolve for good. Notice that. God, that God would fulfill their every resolve for good. Their every idea or desire that they come up with for ministry or to love others. Every determination to see God glorified in some practical way in their life. That God would fulfill their every resolve for good. So too, he prays that God would fulfill their every work of faith. That everything that every time that they stepped out and risked the relationship and spoke the truth in love, that, that God would fulfill that. That God would step that God would fulfill every time that they stepped out and pursued an idea so crazy it just wouldn't work without God. So again the question who was doing the doing? <laughs> in Paul's mind, in his perspective. Is it uh, them and then God? Is it God finishing off what they start? No, 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 no. No, it's God working in their working. God working in their working. How do I know that? Because Paul prays that God would work in their working by His power. End of verse 11. This is not the Thessalonians doing one thing with God filling in the rest. This is God working in their working all by God's power. They are completely dependent upon God to produce the very thing that they need and which they cannot produce themselves. And yet God does it through them so that He would be glorified, it says. So that He would rightfully get all the glory, verse 12. Why? Because He's the one that's giving all the strength, all the power. God has two purposes in this, verse 12. His glory and our good. 
yes, God is out for His glory. But isn't it something what Paul says here in verse 12? He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. God actually has in His mind, as His goal, your glorification with His Son as He is working through you, Thessalonians. He actually has in His mind your glorification with His Son as He produces fruit through you, through your ideas, through your thoughts, through your stepping out in faith. He's actually so for you, Thessalonians. He could not be any less for you. My goodness, He's for you. He is good. He is good. Because we earned it, some of it, any of it? Because they earned some of it, any of it? No, no, no. No, oh my goodness, no. Only according to the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says at the end of verse 12. All by his unmerited, undeserved favor to us does he do all of this. All by his grace. Hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot to think about. But we need to think about this. this. This needs to become our perspective because this is our reality. This is what is true about the Thessalonians and this is what is true about us. So in this prayer, Paul gives thanks. Not, not, uh, not because he, he, he's taking pride in, in his own work in them but because he sees God's purposes being fulfilled in the Thessalonians. And so he prays that God would fulfill in them what they need most by his power to the glory of Christ. So these are, these are the two perspectives that drive Paul in his prayer. We might put it simply that God's purposes and God's power in light of Christ's return. God's purposes and God's power in light of Christ's return. So, so why do we not pray like Paul? Why, why are these prayers so alien to us? And it, it's not a matter of technique. We, we could ape this easy enough. That's, that's easy enough to do. But our, our prayers reveal our perspective on reality, on what we love and on what we think we really need. And by virtue of what we do or do not pray for, they reveal where we think our needs are met. We don't pray like Paul because we don't share his perspective. We, we don't view our life in light of God's purposes and his power in light of Christ's return. We just don't so often. And we're missing out. <laughs> we're missing out. So in light of Christ's return, we need God to fulfill his purposes in us by working with power through us. I'll say that again. In light of Christ's return, we need God to fulfill His purposes in us by working with power through us. So I want to I make two observations, two relatively brief observations about this today. The first one is this. That the return of Christ orients us to God's good purposes to endure to the end. The return of Christ orients us to God's good purposes to endure to the end. 
There is, there is real comfort and hope to simply knowing what's going on. Because life is complex. God is complex. You are complex. Our sin is the great complicator of life. But there is something still going on in, in, in all of our trials and all of our heat. And it is especially comforting and it is especially hope-building to know that what is going on is being done by God for our infinite good. For the very thing that we need the most. This, this doctrine of the return of Christ orients us to the, to the steady ground we need under our feet in life. God has a good purpose in our trials. The best. He is sovereignly in the heat of our lives, producing in us fruit through that heat. Not despite that heat, by the way. Not despite it, through it. Fruit that we will want and need on the day of Christ's return. So think about this. God has that day in mind as He administers this day sovereignly in love for you. You see that? God has this, God has that day and that moment when you would stand before Christ and evidence will be brought forward out of sovereign love to you, Christian. He actually has that day and that moment in mind as He sovereignly administers every atom and every situation and every word and every circumstance of today for you. And upon what basis does He do that? Because he's got another day in mind. The day of the cross and the empty tomb. He has that day in mind. Not because you've earned this, but because of what was accomplished for you on the cross and by the empty tomb. Amazing. He has that day in mind for you, so he administers today for you. So the return of Christ is basic to Christianity. It is basic to our hope. We are people not of a, not of a nail-biting, maybe I hope this better will happen kind of hope, but, but people born to life again because we have a risen Savior who will one day come for us in glory and share all of His glory for us. And we cannot get there ourselves and God will do everything necessary to get us there. And He will do it justly. And He will do it in a way that appears and, and, and is seen by all to be right. To be just out of sovereign love to you. So I, th- th- this reality needs to, needs to frame our reality now. It, it tells us that God's not mad at us. Christian, it, it tells you that God is not fed up with you. I, I can say that no matter what your trial is. God is not fed up with you. He is working in strong, perfect, sovereign love for you. He is always administering every detail, every atom, every government agency order, every governor's veto, every angry letter, every ray of heat in the trials of your life to produce in us what we need the most, but which we cannot produce ourselves. So this, this frames our reality so that we can forget ourselves and we can trust God and, and love others. We can walk across the street or travel across the ocean with the gospel to love others 
We're not masochists, by the way, we Christians. We don't, we don't go out looking for suffering, so make that clear. <laughs> uh, there's plenty of places in this world right now where it's easy enough to find um, just by being a Christian, just by living in faith and love, just like the Thessalonians. <clears throat> this is the hope of a real missionary whether it's across the street or across the ocean, that God is in control for my good, that judgment is coming. And so we go. We, we go. We, we don't just sit back in frustration because some judge wrote a, scribbled his name on a, on a piece of paper somewhere. No, we get up and we move trusting Him. Trusting Him to fulfill our desires for His glory and, and the good of those that we know and that we love. So if we miss this, we, we are missing something fundamental, something basic. This is, this is Christianity 101. These, these bare facts of Christ's return. So, so why? Why is, this not, why is this not central to us? Why do we not talk about it more? Um, well, on the one hand, I, I would really like to blame it all on those who make eschatology a purely scholarly pursuit. You know, people would love to create the timeline and get into arguments and talk about little details here. And, um, and then there's others that, that hear those complex theories and the arguments over them, and then they want nothing to do with the whole business. You know, as, well, then I'm just gonna, not even going to go there at all. <laughs> I'm going to be like that. I don't want to be arrogant and know it all like that guy. Um, the problem is they both missed the point. The problem is they both miss this this engine of hope that every Christian is meant to have. This doctrine is meant to fuel and, and fill out our hope with specific truths that we can take with us to the mailbox and to the newspaper and into that difficult conversation or into the oncologist's office or, or to the wrong end of a raging zealot's lead pipe or, as in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's case, the gallows. It's given to us that we might produce fruit that glorifies Christ and prepares us for that day as we wait for the gallows, as we wait for the diagnosis, as we wait for whatever comes next. That in that we not, might not be overcome, but that we might be overcomers, fruit bearers, Christ glorifiers. I'm not talking nonsense. I'm talking normal Christianity, Christian. God is this powerful. He's this powerful. He's this for you. Lord, help me to believe my own words in my own life. And, but like I said, I, I'd like to blame it all on the academicians and that it's all their fault. And that's, that would be convenient. But the, the problem, I think, is deeper than that, even more human. We don't fix our hope here because we're easily lured away by shiny, faulty counterfeits. Shiny, faulty counterfeit hopes. We're too easily lured away and distracted. And our allegiance to Christ is too easily diverted to, uh, to faulty ways of thinking, faulty perspectives of looking at the future, faulty ways of thinking about God. So we too easily adopt the world's perspective and somewhere in all that drifting and luring, God gets twisted into something He's not. Oh, I... A God who's awake only half the time or He's always angry at me or He's full of love but He's impotent. 
So it's a good time to ask, what are you lured away to hope in? What counterfeits lure you away? Do you need to change your perspective? Um, I'll say that I, I see in myself, uh, but I think this is fairly universal, that self-pity and grumbling are two good indicators that, I've, that I'm holding on to some counterfeit hopes. Self-pity and grumbling. It's interesting the company that grumbling keeps in the Bible. It's almost always listed with the big sins because it represents this deep heart-level defection from God, a defection of mind and perspective. Grumbling points us to where we've lost our moorings and we've drifted from our true hope. It points us to where we've concluded that God is not good and He does not do good for us, or He's at least not able to. And this actually makes grumbling a grievous sin to God because think about it, at the very moment of our grumbling, He is doing sovereignly out of love to us the very thing that we need, the very thing that we need most and the very thing we cannot do for ourselves. Our God is loving us now in the most needful way, in the most blessed way possible. So we need strength to believe this. So we need to turn back to Christ. We need to turn back to Him for forgiveness. For forgiveness of our, of our adopting a different perspective. Of losing sight of His soon return and, and, and all of the blessed good that is coming to us now because of it. We need to ask Him for forgiveness first before we think about anything else. We need to ask Him for forgiveness for self-pity and grumbling. Um, but then we need to turn from that. We need to put on, instead of grumbling, faith in God and instead of self-pity, love, love towards others. Forget ourselves in Christ and love others. And so it means cooperating with God's purposes for you in your trials, large or small. That God is after fruit in your trials. He's after the fruit of especially faith and love and hope. The only way we can do this is by His Spirit. We need His Spirit to help us help us believe both in the faithfulness of God and in the depth of His love to us to read this and believe it. God, help us. And as you adopt this perspective, you'll see God's purposes being worked out in others and you will thank God for it as Paul does here. And this leads us to the second observation. God, by His power, must prepare us for the return of Christ. So pray with this in mind. God, by His power, must prepare us for the return of Christ. So pray with this in mind. When we pray for ourselves and and for each other with Christ's return in mind, we begin to pray for what we really need. We, We begin to pray for ourselves and for each other according to reality. By this, I don't mean that we, we shouldn't pray for healing or, or the job or the kids. I, I don't mean that. Um, but as Paul says, whenever I pray for you, I, I always pray this way. If the return of Christ is our fixed point, and if we need fruit to be counted worthy, and if only God produces that fruit, and if He does that through the trials and the sufferings of my life, then love dictates that we will pray for each other with these things in mind. We will pray this way for those we love. 
We will demonstrate our love for them by praying according to this perspective. Otherwise, we'll just keep praying for each other's idols. You know, you asked me last week, Jed, how can I pray for you? I might have said, uh, pray that I'll preach a good sermon. (laughs) That sounds good. Which would be great to pray for, except if my idol is the approval of men. And then your prayer for me would be, oh Lord, please feed Jed's idol of the approval of men by causing him to have a good sermon. And I think we do that all the time. I think we we unknowingly, unwittingly pray out of a a non-reality, an unreality for each other's idols. Um, We keep praying for each other's counterfeit hopes to be fulfilled. And I I find the drift here in my own praying, especially when it comes to my kids. I I love them. You love your kids. Uh, I don't want them to experience anything bad ever. Not at all. Um, Or do I? What do they really need? What do my kids really need, according to this passage? Oh, Lord, give me faith. (laughs) with my kids to believe this way, <laughs> to pray this way. Give, give me grace to, to, to believe that what they really need is fruit, to stand worthy on that day. So give them faith and produce fruit in them, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And give me faith to actually mean that when I pray it. <laughs> In the heat of life, they need God and the gospel to not wilt, but to endure fruitfully. They need God to work with power in them to produce fruit that will be ample evidence on that day that they are worthy of the kingdom. That's what will matter four billion years from now. It won't matter that they got a good job and that they were economically secure before they got married and that they, that they, they found a good-looking spouse. And, and that all will not matter. What will matter is, do they know God? Are they in Christ? Brothers and sisters, what, what, what would happen to us if we really began to pray this way? What would happen? This is the language of revival. That's what, Paul's, that's what Paul's reflecting upon here. He was looking on the Thessalonians and seeing revival. And so he prayed for revival. So Lord, give us grace to believe this, to mean it, to cooperate with you in it. So... We need to think about how we pray for each other. We we need to start with Christ's return and pray backwards. (laughs) Pray backwards from there. When others ask us how they can pray for us, instead of saying, please let such and such happen at work, perhaps, what would it change in us if instead we answered, you know what, I've been awfully nervous about my my presentation coming up and my boss is riding me like a rented mule. uh, you know what? Really, in all that, I, I see that I'm I'm drifting. I, I'm drifting in my thinking that my that my security and and that God's smile are are tied to the success of this project that I'm working on. Um, so I've actually started taking refuge in food and TV. So uh, would you play? Would you pray that uh, that I will grow in my trust of Him through this? Would you pray that I'll actually love my boss? That I'll actually do my work out of love for God and love for my boss? And um, 
Would you pray that I'll, that I'll take hold of God's promises for me, that He is, he is actually accomplishing life for me in this, in this trial? Would you, would you pray for me in that? What, what would change in us if we began to answer each other's requests for prayer that way? I think a lot. This is not our normal prayer language, but it is the language of revival. It's language that corresponds to our reality in light of Christ's return. And this is the starting point for, for all ministry, by the way. This is where all effective ministry starts. Have you ever wondered, how do I... I know I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, but what, what, how, how does that work? Like, what do I... You know, when I get to the, the place over the coffee when the person finally starts to open up and, I, and then they say it and then I'm like, well, I'll pray for you and then uh, sip. <laughs> um, what next? What, what, what do I do? As we begin to learn to pray this way, we will become more and more in touch with our own reality and more and more in touch with the, with the reality of the person across from us. As we learn to pray according to reality out of love for them, we will begin to to understand their reality and be in the best position possible to fruitfully, effectively speak the truth and love to them. This is the starting point for real ministry. These truths confront us with the reality that God must fulfill whatever, whatever idea we have, whatever resolve for good we have, he must fulfill it, which means pray. And when we step out and act, we're confronted by the fact that it's His power that must do it. So we need to pray. And we're confronted with the question of whose glory am I pursuing in this? Is it Christ? Oh, then I need to pray. And then we're confronted with a slightly different question. What glory am I pursuing in this? Am I pursuing glory, the, the glory that I will share in on that day? Am I, actually, am I actually pursuing the very same thing that God is pursuing in this? Oh, then I need to pray. I need to pray, Lord, give me that perspective. Not that I earned that worthiness on that day, but that God would work in me now in such a way that it might, might accrue to His glory on that day that, and that I would share in that glory. So, Lord, would You work in our working? Would you work so that you get more glory, more fame on that day? Would you do this, oh Lord? And yes, yes, Lord, we pray for that surgery to go well. We pray for success in that area. But Lord, we also pray for growth in faith in love through all of our heat. Make us more ready for the day of your return, oh Lord. Make us ready. Prepare us. Would you do that? So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm drawn by these truths to, to slow down. To slow down and frame my reality in the, in the truths that we find here. And the reality of what God is up to in my life now. I'm given pause to, to slow down and to pray. To pray. And if I don't have time to pray, then something's wrong. I'm missing this. I'm... I'm stepping askew from God's purposes, His very purposes for me and my life now. And it makes me want to, makes me want to pray in such a way that I'm, I'm more in touch with others' reality, that I, that, 
that I would begin to see more and more clearly what, what others need, what they truly need, and that I myself would grow in needing what I need to be in the best position to speak the truth and love in a fruitful and effective way. This whole, these truths, they, they prepare us to minister to each other fruitfully, to fruitfully endure to the end, come what may. Come what may. So we need power. We need God's power for it all. For it all. So let's pray. So Lord, we do... Well, I want to begin by thanking You. You couldn't be any better... You couldn't be any more good. You couldn't be any more great. You couldn't be any more for us. So I simply want to say, praise Your name. Praise Your name. And I I pray that You would be praised. Your name would be praised, Lord Jesus, through my life and through the lives of my brothers and sisters here. That in the ordinary moments of our lives, Your name, that Your fame would be increased as You produce fruit in us. But we don't have it in us, so we, we come to You now when we pray, would You work in power through us? Work in power. Glorify Your Son, O Father. Glorify His name. I thank You that in His glorification, we get all good. We too share in His glory. What a day that will be. Bring it soon. Bring it soon. And until then, we ask, work in power. We ask this for Your glory and for our good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.